Hey, it's Burton Shaolo. And this is Savannah Hart, and you're listening to the Black Box Podcast. It's like, you know, how do you show up as a woman in this industry? I show up as myself. I show up authentically as myself. I have men that have supported me strongly. I have women that have supported me strongly. I have allies from both sides that have been a part of this journey with me. And those friendships and and those work relationships mean a lot to me. This is the Black Box Podcast with Burton Chawla and Savannah Hart. It's a conversation with industry leaders in the sports, music, and entertainment space. On this episode, we have Danita Johnson, president of the MLS DC United, president of business operations of DC United. Danita, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. So easy, easy, obvious question. I think for me even, what does president of business operations mean? Um, I oversee all the business functions of the organization. So sales, marketing, our full entity of like the actual business, everything business oriented, non on field. So B2B and B2C. Yes. Okay. What are the different departments that sort of fall under that function? I'm guessing marketing, I'm guessing PR, I'm guessing corporate sales. um, I'm guessing vendor relationships. Like, can you go into detail about those different sort of uh, buckets? Yeah. All of those, all of that would be inclusive of it. Ticket sales, Anything we do with our consumers, um, supporter groups, um, just the full entity as a business, everything that, you know, from the driving revenue opportunities to how we show up in the community from a CR perspective, all of that um, is within those functions. So one of the um, or two of the things I should say that you really tend to focus on seem to be community outreach and a strong culture. That's what makes or seems to make a, a really strong company for you. How did you land on those two things being your part of your core values within an organization? I think that's our core values as people, right? So mm-hmm. like as people, we want something that we believe in from an everyday standpoint, whether it's religion, whether it's, you know, your family, you believe in something, right? You know, people grow up believing in all sorts of fictitious things and real things in life, and that motivates them. So I feel like there's things that we need to believe in in our lives. And so when we have a core foundation of something to believe in that also does good and makes us feel good as people, why not be involved? How'd, how'd you get there? How'd you land on? I mean, I agree with you. That assessment I agree with. And I think investing in people is maybe one of my core values when I do stuff. But how, how'd you get, like, how'd you navigate to that? Like, the way you said that was so clear and articulate and confident. H- how'd you get to that sort of being a core value? Yeah, I think it's our experiences, right? We all remember that first internship or job or that first time you didn't necessarily feel the best in the workplace or you yeah. have those days, right? And everybody has them still. It's no, no perfection to it. But we all think about, like, when it's your turn when it's my turn, when it's somebody's turn to actually lead, how do you actually want to show up as a person in that, right? And so for me, my choice is, is that from beginning, when I knew that there was a possibility for me to lead in any capacity, is to try to show up as my best self. And with that, did I have bad days of doing it? Absolutely. Did I not know how to do it at times? Absolutely. But over time, you find a cadence and like, The more you work on yourself and development, I think you find this place where you can actually be like, you know what, this is how I want to show up. And this is who I want to be. Like, I'm better today than I was six months ago. 
as a person, right? But that's because growth time and things happen. So like I learn from the trials and tribulations of life that then play into how I move forward and how I lead and how I live my life personally. Was there like a moment that, I don't want to say it like this, but was there an aha moment? Like, I'm not going to do that or I'm definitely going to do that. Um, I think there's multiple moments, right? right? So we learn from these mistakes or we learn from the good that happens in our lives. Be like, oh, I want to do that. Or somebody made you feel a certain way. And you're like, I want to make somebody else feel like that. Or I want to actually not ever want to make somebody right, feel right, that right, way. Right. Right? Or feel that way again. Yep. Right. So I think there's these moments in life, you know, like for me, when I was a young director, so I worked a lot of hours when I first started, like not saying I don't work hours now, I still do, but like, I was working all the time and you'd be like, oh, I want to get first back to that email. I want to do this right now or else right. this is a lost opportunity. But I couldn't balance myself to maintain that. Right. So that was a very big awakening for me early on in my management time was that you can't you can't maintain that and actually be good at your work. So I had to figure out how to actually find balance in my like. It's probably like my first real management job to be like, wait, you can't balance trying to just show up energetically every single day without a sense of time for yourself. Yeah, we're all humans, right? Like we all have bandwidth. We all have emotional ups and downs and we all run out of energy. And it feels like work-life balance is such a common topic, especially within sports, because we tend to be overworked. Um, but it doesn't always translate to our day-to-day. So how do you actually implement that? Is it on like, like being hands-on with the direct supervisors under you so that they know that they can have their subordinates have a proper work-life balance? What is the actual translation to the day-to-day look like? It's like the actions, right? So... I'm told, I talked to my team and I've, I've worked on this over the years. It's like, let's not email each other late at night. Mm-hmm. Like, you I'm just giving like a small lines. example, right? Yeah. So yeah. like, let's not email each other late at night. What about text? Um, just no communication about work after this hour. Yeah, right. Unless it's an emergency. Right. I mean, that's a nice, that's a nice little trick, right? Like, right. But then that means like for their, for their staff are doing, they're doing the same thing. Right. Right. So I don't need to email you all day on Saturday and Sunday unless like it's different. We have a match. Things are going on. Right. It's a different flow. But like on a Tuesday in December, we don't need to be up emailing at 10 o'clock at night if it's nothing urgent. Yep. I mean, our producers told me to stop texting them on the weekends. So I actually have to implement that in my life. Like stop like doing stuff on the weekends. But I will tell you, and Danita and I know each other through a mutual friend. I'll tell you, Anthony and I don't have that relationship. He'll call me at midnight on a Sunday. He he doesn't care. Um, but And and there's relationships where you can do that, right? right? Of course. Of course. Or like you said, if you're working on a project. Yep, for sure. Yeah. Like if I was an entrepreneur in a whole different space and like we were doing like me and my best friend were working on something. We're going to yep. go at this all night. We'll talk yep. about it all day. We'll go to brunch and do the same thing. But like in our environments of like, when we think about like our industries and like corporate America in some capacity, like where's the space? Yep. Especially because, you know, I've worked for the Knicks and Savannah's worked for the Nets. You're there late at night on a Tuesday just because there's a game, right? Yeah. And that's, yep. it's not, a it's game, not nine a game to five. day is a 12 hour day. Right. Well, not just that. It's a 12 hour day and then you're there the next day at 9 a.m. Yeah. It's not like, oh, I worked till midnight last night. So I get to, and, and there are other industries are like that too. I'm not trying to absolve yeah. it or I'm not a soft person where it's like, you can't work 60 hours in a week. Of course you can. But I think what Savannah's point is, which I definitely, um, agree with is like, there's a work 
life balance. And now it's 2021. People are way more, um, aware of that importance. They're more, more aware of mental health. And I want to talk to you about this, Daniel. I've, I've, we watched a bunch of your interviews together and individually just to understand, you know, your approach to your profession. And one of the things you brought up in one of your interviews was the importance of mental health and mental wellness. And it's something I talk about a lot. It's actually something Samantha talks about a lot too. What as a, as a leader, as a uh, business leader, as an organizational leader, how, how do you, but not as a doctor, right? Not as a medical professional. How do you, how do you implement that sort of, how do you emphasize that importance as you build out your team? I think it's a combination of things we're talking about. Right. And I, and, and we're not even to a, a perfect place in this. This is like this idealistic yeah. world that we build upon in our industry. And like what you're, I just want to go back to something that we're just saying that I'll kind of answer this sure. along with it is that there's multiple facets to why we work 12 and 14 hour days. There's things we have to do from a staffing standpoint to be able to help supplement those. There's other things that play into the factor to give people relief. There are going to be marathon moments in the industry. There are moments, the reason why I'm here today is because I was working 12 and 14 hour days at a point in my career. Yep. Not saying I don't do that now, more balanced, because sometimes you got to study hard. And so sometimes studying hard is doing those 12 and 14 hour days sometimes. But then you got to like break off and be like, all right, let me relieve myself from that for a minute to clear my head on what I studied and actually absorb it. Yep. So I just want to be clear about there are moments in your career where that's what you do. But there there's times too, even within that, you find balance. And so- to go back to what you're asking about, like, how does a mental health play into that is then saying, you know what, mentally right now, I need to be locked into this and I can't be distracted in order for me to elevate the way I want to elevate. And therefore, I might need to, whether it's I have counseling or other resource groups behind me to help support me to mentally understand that balance, whether it's breathing techniques or how to actually prioritize my list or all the things that are going on in my mind. How do I actually break them down so I can execute them versus feeling like I'm running on a hamster wheel? So I think there's this piece that there's this balance that goes along with that, that, that becomes really important and how that starts to attack that mental health element you're talking about. But I, I guess, I guess what I was asking also was not just your, your approach, but how do you help your organization's approach, your subordinates approaches? Like, you know, you're building a team, right? Your business operations and all of those buckets you talked about, whether it was marketing or corporate sales or in PR, they're all, yeah, in a culture. And so this entire group falls underneath you. How do you, as a leader in that group and as a, person who believes in mental wellness, as you just denoted, how do you sort of implement that in your organization? Or is it just not your place to? No, it is. It absolutely is. I think this is where like resources come in handy. Like I can't be like, oh, I'm the expert on mental health, but like what resources do we have for our staffs and our employees? And that's what we're, I got to, and I can't even really talk about my current place. I'm just saying like, these are things we got to, I'm still figuring out, right? I'm yep. still like, I'm like 90 days in barely. So I'm like, I got to figure out, all right, what's the cadence for this for, for our team? Like right now it's just dialogue and trying to learn about the team in order to be able to do things like that, to make sure you're actually bringing the right resources to the table. Because sometimes if we just go idealistically and be like, all right, we should probably have this, this, and this, it may not check the boxes of what people actually need. Yeah, so I think it's really finding out from them, talking to them. What do you need? How can we help? Like we're, we're talking to stuff right now that's actually going to help do that. How often does resource, whether it's regarding this or otherwise, come up before you take a role? I think it's a big piece. I think it's, so too. I just don't know how transparent companies are about that. Yeah. I think people, I think it's a conversation that happens probably more than 
not like probably, I don't know, you know, I can't speak for others in that, but it's something that I know I ask about like what resources are available and what's the willingness to incorporate new resources is really the question. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like, what's the willingness to get better? If I see something, you know, as a, as an employee, as a part of this team, what's the willingness to get better? Yeah. So to your point, Anita, um, you know, everyone needs has their own specific needs. Um, and I feel like you did a really good job with that during your tenure at the LA Sparks. You know, you had the year long We Are Women campaign, which sold out, um, which sold out Staples Center, 19,000 seats. Um, and during your tenure, you increased ticket sales by 50%. Um, and you were able to do that through community outreach. Um, you know, you had the busing program to bring um, underserved communities to the games. How do you, what's your approach to finding out what these specific communities need and actually executing it through your team? Talking to them. Like we had a group of female ambassadors that helped us ideate a lot of that. Some of it was their own personal experiences, conversations with our team internally, letting team members from different departments actually have input to figure out how to actually grow something. Um, But it was really actually talking to the women in the community and working with different organizations that actually partnered and gave us their institutional knowledge of what they do from a day to day, because they're the ones that truly do that work. Mm-hmm. on a, like a day-to-day perspective. So them doing that really was our just saying, we have a platform. You have institutional knowledge. I don't have, right. but I have a great platform. How can we work together? Yep. I feel like there's this common misconception that it can be difficult to generate revenue or develop partnerships for the WNBA. But in your tenure, you were able to do just that. What do you feel like certain organizations are missing or not understanding? <sighs> Yeah, I, it's actually, I don't want to say, you mean like other like teams or clubs? Yes, or you mean, yes. You know, I, I don't know if it's that they're missing something. I think it's people's willingness and openness to have true dialogue with them and understand who they are and where they come from. Um, I think one of the common things that we tried to do was really try to find partners that aligned and represented what the women on the court represented and what our brand and identity represented. And sometimes it takes a little bit to seek companies that actually truly get that, right? And, and truly cross over into that factor. So I think it, it's being able to have that opportunity. You mean the opportunity to have the dialogue with the brands? I, I, I would argue in the last five years, it's gotten better. In the last three years, it's gotten better. I think more, it's not just Nike that's willing to lead in sort of that category. I feel like more and more brands, we talk about this a lot, I, whether it's genuine or they just see a market here, more and more brands are willing to spend in women's athletics. I, I'm seeing that. I, is that your take? I mean, or you you think- the, they're still not there though. We're yeah. still at is 3% of sponsorship dollars, maybe four goes into women's athletics. Yeah, I mean, right. we just saw the disparity in the NCAA tournament between the men's and the and the women's. Did you guys see that? But the I think that was operational. That was the NCAA not providing the same resources. But right? that, yeah, I, I feel like that that kind of trickles into partnership, into marketing dollars, or whatever the case may be. Okay, I mean, I, 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 I that's a fair point. That's capitalism at its best, right? Like, where are the dollars coming in? So where are we spending the money? I, I get that. I guess. I would say, I'm with you, Danita. If that's the true, t- true statistic, it's 4%. That's not a lot it's at a three, all. Four. 
I'm mixing them up because one of them's the media coverage and one is the sponsorship coverage. And I just, I'm but like, either way, it's not enough. Ten percent is not enough, right? Like either way, it's not enough. And I'm with you. I guess my point was like, I feel like it's get, starting to get there. I rem, I sold something in 2000. You're visually seeing it probably more than you have in a very long time. I think that's probably what you're probably feeling. Like you can look at kind of Twitter feed and you see it. You can yep. look at your IG and you'll see it. So the organization is helping. Are we there yet? No. But the fact that now you're starting to see it and it's not lost in your feed and it's something that you're acknowledging as individuals, that means something's moving, which means be positive change along with that. Does that make sense? So that's where people are like, oh, it's more, it's more. No, you're seeing it now and it's in front of you. And now it's like, okay, now what do we do with what we're seeing? Yep. How do you think, what's what's your answer to that? What do we do with what we're seeing? People got to make choices. People at brands have to make choices, what you're saying. Across the board. It it goes beyond brand, right? So you have, as you said earlier today, you said you do B2B and B2C, right? There's consumers that help drive brand decision making. So there's a lot of people. It just can't just be one facet that pushes it all. Does it help? Absolutely. But there are multiple facets into like how that actually elevates. It's not like a one trick pony of being like, just with partners, it works. You know, you got to have people in this, like the fans, the other pieces to it that also play into the factor of actually growing all the pieces to it. The media, media has a role. Broadcast rights. Those all play into big pieces of this. And so, so media does have a role. So how, well, I, I think I saw an interview where you were saying we need more media members that are educated about the sport or, or self-educated about the sport. What's the push there? Do you think it, like all of this works together? You think it's all a trickle down effect? The brands are involved, the broadcast is involved. So that'll push some young journalist to be like, Hey, I want to cover this sport now because now there's momentum behind it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that plays a part into it, right? And it's also to how can we have more athletes having access to actually play at a young age to grow where at 13 young girls aren't stopping to play sports, right? Like right. that's what I'm saying. It's, it's a societal big yeah. thing but yes everybody moving in a common direction to make changes can impact change so it's the commonality of creating a pathway to success so if one person's doing their part here it helps if another one's doing their part there it helps it all creates the opportunity for growth all right and that's just the way the world works too that's in anything Right. That makes sense, and that's and that's what and that's what I think that's what the, the that's what people were I think what's trying to be said here is that it's not one thing, mm-hmm. right? But the fact that right now we're talking and you're aware of it and you're like I see it a lot, so something has to be happening. That's already a positive, right? You're seeing it, right? There's amplification of the voices, whether that's social media or there's like more there's more voices in the room. I think there's you know like you said a combination of things, many things. I think more people are comfortable with their voice now, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think I think there are um, loud enough, explicit enough fans now that can say this is dope. Whereas maybe 15 years ago, they weren't as comfortable saying this is dope. Right. So I see a lot of that. So translating that to like, do you see that as a thing for without getting into specifics of, of the stuff that you're doing at DC United? Do you see that for MLS? Do you see like we're, we're one of those leagues? We're one of those teams that needs that amplification of voice. We need that movement. You, do you see that? And then. Again, without getting into specifics, like what are some of your tactics? I think it's happening. I mean, you see the participation of soccer and youth. You see the facilities, the opportunity to train, what's happening where you can actually, you know, turn on a television and see it more here in the U.S. than you probably ever have before. Like it's moving forward. 
I mean, the stadiums that are being built across the country, the expansion of the league, all of that is playing into the overall growth. And so, yeah, I, I think it's definitely, I mean, it's not far off. So in, uh, um, I was reading in, I think it was November 2020, the MLS actually announced that they, they're doing this huge diversity and inclusion initiative. Cause I think they had some pressure for, um, black, players for change. And their main concern was, I think, if I'm not mistaken, 22% of the players are identified as black, but there's only, I think, two coaches and one general manager. Do you have or see, because I know you are, they kind of look at you to set this new era, usher, usher in this new era for MLS and DC United. What do you envision that looking like? And how do you actually plan on executing it? Because you are the if I'm not mistaken, the first woman in to have an executive role within the MLS and then also the first black person. And normally in, in my conversations, a lot of us sometimes, and I can only speak personally, but we feel the need to open the door for people behind us. With the announcement of me and, and coming into D.C. and understanding the impact of being the first African-American woman, the first person of color, um, you know, I think I, I take responsibility with that. I think it's very important for me to lead by example and show what diversity of thought people organization bring to the table to help grow an organization that I completely agree with. I think having the opportunity and I've talked about this before, probably I love how you guys have listened to other things I've said. So thank you. Um, But I talk (laughs) about like I try whenever I have the time to do 15 to 20 minute calls with folks that I don't necessarily know that are just looking for a sense of advice when I have a little extra time and things of that nature and finding ways to give back. It's probably why I do this, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm doing this because it can reach masses of people at once where maybe I don't have as much time, but I can do an hour and sit here and talk with you all that people can hear my voice and and hear my thought process of how I got to where I am and hopefully have a sense of impact. And that's why I think these things are important. Right. I, I say that because people are like, oh, you do these interviews and things. I'm like, yeah, it's good. But like the truth is, is that it gives an opportunity for my voice to hopefully potentially have impact for that person that went into work that day and like didn't believe they could do it. And the way that I look plays a part in that. And I know that. Yeah. And so I just try to make sure that with that, I that's why I said like, you know, I try to show up as my best. And when it comes to diversity and inclusion and why it's important, like I remember being the only woman of color on a sales floor of like 30 to 50 yep. people. Yep. And I didn't, the interesting part was nobody made me feel different. They weren't trying to do anything intentional but it was what it was, right? So in that sense, my thought process had been very on. I was like this observant little kid, right? And was like, when my time comes, it's going to look a certain way. And Mm. it's going to look like all the fans that are in the stands. Right. Mm, That's beautiful. Right. And that's what I try to aim for. And it's not to like say nobody's better than the other. I want the best hire, period. Um, But I also know that I want representation of the world that we live in. Do you think there's from an outside, I don't know how closely you follow, do you think that there's organizations in any of the six or eight major leagues, however you want to define the major leagues, do you think there are organizations that do it really right? Like, I, I don't know. I don't necessarily follow that closely, but uh, but I imagine there are certain organizations that are known for this, that do it right, that have diverse culture, that has that diverse hirings, that are inclusive that think about the mental health part of things. Do, do you know any off top, off the top of your mind? Do you follow this? Is this yeah. something you identify and follow? Yeah. And you know what? It's actually, I take practices from all sorts of different teams, sure. 
clubs. Like I look and be like, does anybody have a perfect? Probably not. But there's some people out here doing really great work. Absolutely. But I look at those and be like, all right, how can I add this to us? How can I take this skill set of like what these people are doing to actually add into my repertoire to make my organization better? So looking at those best practices. And that was one of the beautiful things about like the NBA, WNBA family too. Like, and MLS is kind of like that as well. Like it's an entity, right? So like sharing best practices on how to become your better organization, just like you would your better self. Um, I think people are truly like really striving to, to be better. There's a lot of people out here striving to be better. And I think that's the thing is like, People are learning from mistakes. Like I said earlier, like I made plenty of mistakes and I'm learning from them to be a better leader today than I was yesterday. Right. So I think there are definitely some organizations out here trying to make a headway and really trying to look at things um, from a different lens. And I think where it's hard to is when you mess up, it's hard for people to forgive (laughs) and it's hard for people to get past it. But you got to you got to keep working at it. You just keep working at it and you consistently do it. And the more consistency, the less opportunity for people to keep bringing it back up. Like if you can consistently be better each day. What are two best practices besides strong culture and community outreach that you bring with you to every single organization? They're non-negotiables for you. I like to sell. I mean, it's about to be like, <laughs> so best practice is like we need a, a, a good seller, strong sellers. Yep. Yeah, we need strong sellers. We need a strong sales culture. We need to be able to understand and how to tell our story and generate revenue. Like, yep. at the, like that's part of this. Yeah. I, I, argue, I feel like sales cultures are, are known to be a little, a little toxic sometimes. Yeah. So I was going to say this about sales culture. So I I've agree. never been in sales. You've been in sales. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, I sell every day. Um, I, I agree with strong sales culture, but to Savannah's point, oftentimes that sentence or phrase has a negative connotation to it because a lot of people, and, and sometimes warranted, a lot of people think it's just a bunch of dudes in a room being bros and that's how we sell and that's how we sell and all that stuff. And that happens a lot at a lot of organizations. Now I've sold media. I've not sold corporate partnerships for teams and all that stuff. I've sold media. I've sold content. I've done uh, endorsement deals for athletes. Although that exists, here's how I define strong sales culture. I want, and I have four people that report to me now that are salespeople. I want all four of them to have essentially two qualities. I hope they have 15 positive qualities, but I need two. One is we are working in unison. We are not working in this guy did a million this quarter and this guy did 700, so he sucks. I don't want that. I don't want that team. I want the guy that did a million and the guy that did seven. I want the guy that did a million to tell the guy that did a hundred thousand. Here's how I got to a million. I want that team. Like, like I. But aren't they competing each other for numbers? They're competing against each other for admiration because if you divide it up right, they're not competing against each other. So then the second thing I want, and, and I take that back to, and maybe this is Danita's point about people who play collegiate sports. Like I take that back to how I play basketball. I don't care. If I shoot it a hundred times or two times, if we won the game and we played the right way. So here's my second point, And this is what I think play the right way is I want all of my salespeople, sales culture to be, we use this word too much. I'll, I'll, instead of using it, I'll use a different word. I want them to be honest. I want them to be honest to themselves. I want them be, to be honest to the story that they're telling to the brand or partner that they are trying to sell. The dishonesty to to get one over on someone to make a sale 
is not going to work long term. It's only going to work short term. And yeah, you hit your number this month because you were dishonest, but you're not going to hit your number next year because you were dishonest. So I only care about two. So that's the culture I built. Like I, I know it has a negative connotation, sales culture, but you can make it positive. And those are the two things I sort of focus on when I identify team members. Like that's my approach to sales. I don't know. Do you know you've done sales? I don't know if you have a different or you want to add on to that or, or take away from that. Or you just want to say I'm amazing. That's cool too. If you want to say. I'm with you. It's relationship building. Right. But true relationships, right? It's like everything in life, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what Danita was saying and how she was able to build those authentic relationships within the WNBA. They had the same bottom line. They had the same values. And that's how she was able to identify those people because right. you don't always have the big um, marketing budget or you don't have the biggest name or the most followers on social media. So. Right. It seems that's the most authentic I just, way to go about I just it. fired a guy recently, all right? And so this is the main thing that stuck out in my head on why he needed to be fired. His approach to sales was this, and he literally said this on internal calls, which drove me mad. He was like, we need to create a problem for them, and then we create a solution for them. And we're pitching brands, so you have some contacts, right? We're pitching brands. So I pulled him aside, and I said, so what you're saying is you want me to puncture a person's tire and then say, here's a tire for sale. He's like, yeah, essentially. And I was like, ah, that's not how I sell. And that's not how I want to sell. Like to me, that's a silly approach. Yeah. Are you going to sell the I tire? Feel, I feel like you must not be a good salesperson if that's what you have to do in order to right, sell. Right. And that's my point about bad sales culture. That's a bad sales culture. But there can be a good sales culture as well. And I think it comes with honesty. Okay. We can get off the topic. I know I'm like, this is something like I can get into and get all ruffled and, and all that stuff. You already so, got ruffled. Yeah, I've been ruffled all day <laughs> and I'm trying to, to stay away from that ruffled approach. All right, Danita, where are you at in your life? You said at one point you were just a younger person in the industry, absor- observing, absorbing, trying to take this from there, learn from that, all the hours you put in, the studying, all of that. What's the advice that you give a young person in the industry? What's the advice you give someone entering the industry? What's the advice you give someone that's seven years into the industry? Ooh, like me. I like how you broke it down. I actually <laughs> have a model I broke down for like a speaking engagement once Ooh. that I did. I wish I had it in front of me that literally said how each of the stages work um, of what you just asked okay, me. What's the top, can we, can top we start? Can we, can we selfishly start with seven years in? Because that, that's me. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm at, I'm going to try to reflect on how I broke this down of the stages of career and I'm going to get to the seven years. But like in the beginning, I think it's like those first two to three years is just like observing your environment, trying to understand and just get your barriers. Right. Um, you're, You're learning what's in front of you. Three to five is like you're really trying to get the skill down. Right. You're trying to like master this, like not necessarily master, but you're like in a culture of selling, I'll say, right? So you're now like, all right, I'm actually closing and I'm proving, I'm doing like proof of concept that I could like actually succeed year over year based off what I learned. Like I can actually add value to the organization. I think when you go into like year seven and things of that nature, it's like whatever skill set, depending on where you want to go in your career, it does make a difference. Not everybody wants to manage, not everybody wants to lead and it's perfectly yep. okay not to. Right, I just right. want to be super clear about that. So like, if you're like, listen, I do want to lead. I want to manage. I want to like build a team around me. My, in that time period, when you go after like year five, can you actually teach it to somebody else that they can consume it and produce it? 
So like where you want to understand is like, can I teach a skill set to somebody that they can now consume? So like I can be the best seller in the world, right? right? Quote unquote, I'm not. But what I can do is I can actually teach somebody that skill back, right? So if somebody is... No idea what's happening outside. <laughs> do, you, do you live on a racetrack or something? Like a motorcycle racetrack? Yeah, that, that one so I heard. Intense. Yeah. Like that was intense. <laughs> it was very intense. I don't I, I don't know what's happening. Um, but back to what I was saying, the important part is that that's where you want to be able to say, I can teach and build. Like I can teach a skill set back to people yep. for them to be able to produce. After you move past year seven, it's like, all right, I can teach somebody. Now, can I actually take this? Now, can I ideate overall strategy that my teachers can now teach to others? Right. Do I have strategy? Do I have concept that can either go up or down from a bigger perspective? That's where you're at. That is, to me, one of the harder parts. Um, after you learning like that skill set, I actually, I think middle management is the hardest one. It's that, it's that first middle management of dealing with people for the first time and their feelings and all of yep, those layers yep. of people is probably one of the hardest ones. Um, as you grow, it gets a little bit better. It's never, it's always the hardest part of the work, but now it's like, can you do strategy? Can you build concept? Can you really be able to evaluate and predict what might be coming ahead and plan futuristically once you get into that next phase of your career. So I think that might answer your question. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it did. And I can relate to a lot of it. Heavily, I, yeah, yeah. And I think it wasn't generic at all. So that's very helpful. I think you're right about middle management. I struggled with that. I was actually really, I was a natural at that, but I'm a people person too. Yeah, but I think what, so my issue, I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for Danita's advice there, but my issue was balancing people's feelings yeah yeah exactly like what you said you're just not a feeling person no that's the opposite i'm i'm a you can barely manage me burn (laughs) yeah i I, actually it's the opposite i'm very sensitive to the idea that people have feelings i have feelings like i'm emotional like Mm -hmm. i'm very sensitive to that where i try where i'm not i don't want to say insensitive to it but where i'm not like I don't allow that to factor into the work like that's and that's some of the balance right like you like to me, again, I take everything back to sports because the, these are some of the learning lessons. Like, I don't care that you're upset that you missed the shot. Like, you shouldn't have taken that shot. And, and that's like sort of like how I express it at, from work. Like, which you can is be ups- probably why you're not that good at management. Because although you don't care that they missed the shot, like you're automatically putting your subordinate on the defense. No, it's not that I don't care by that they approaching mi- I, it that way. If they missed the shot and it was a good shot then I won't be upset that they missed a shot. But if they missed a shot because it was a bad shot, then I'm going to tell you that was a bad shot. And your feelings don't matter in that moment because this is work. This isn't like playtime. That's the way I approach it. But it's really hard to say your feelings don't matter because this is work. Because like we were saying, like we're all human at the end of the day and we can't say like we can't just put our feelings or our emotions to the side yeah you're right you're right about that i I try not to say that out loud but i definitely think that like i i definitely (laughs) you say it out loud i definitely i I always (laughs) say it it out loud to me in the past 24 hours (laughs) yeah 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 because you're getting upset about something that's nothing to get upset about okay that would drag into the into our personal lives right um okay so i can i hear you i hear I, i understand that so okay one super generic question which i don't I definitely don't know the answer to. And, and maybe 90 days in, you're still learning it. Where do you think the MLS can go? 
as far as impact in America or just globally? Definitely globally. They're a global. They're the biggest global sport. I wouldn't have changed and came here if I didn't believe in what was possible. And that completely believe right. was possible with this league. Right. So sky's the limit is the answer there. Yep. Um, I don't know anything about MLS, but what are some of the biggest corporate partners for the league and for your team? Or what are some of the brands that you're – not even brands, but categories that you're going after that maybe is new? I'll, I'll, so I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm going after now, right, for content around athletes. New category, fintech. Like to me, some of those like not big banks, the chimes of the world, the allies of the right. world. Like oh, yeah. to me, they're spending money in this. So, in that. More than anything, to answer that, it is probably an innovation technology. Like you're going to look at right. innovation technology and then anything like from a mobile standpoint, like the way that people interact with their phones is all going to be very intriguing. Um, I think virtual experiences at this point right now, just due to the COVID environment, have had an impact on how people yep. actually experience. Um, you know, VR was like the talk of everything pre-pandemic of like, how does that actually impact um, being able to help define and understand the customer journey and giving consumer accessibility and how the actual c- customer journey is done from in arena experiences to like how you purchase items, all of that stuff I think is very interesting. And so when you look at the way in which consumers are consuming and when you look at the way technology is advancing, I think there's this place to meet in the middle that's very interesting in the sports world right now. And I don't think that is just siloed to MLS. I think that is across the sports industry um, that it's going to be very interesting how we all continue to move forward in that space. Yeah, I think it's measurable now, right? Virtual shopping carts, you know what people are actually purchasing and maybe to some extent how they're purchasing it. Okay, so we want to be mindful of your time. So we appreciate the hour and some change that you gave us. We appreciate you being candid with us and covering an array of topics. How do we find you? If there are, are there any shout outs, uh, social media wise for you, DC United, any of that stuff that you want to kind of self promote? Go find DC United. We have matches. We have fans back in the stands. Come out and watch. Um, so I think that's great. I mean, it's it's my day job. I, th- I mean, <laughs> that's awesome. Are you guys at full capacity? No, not yet. Not yet. So hopefully one day soon. We got to just... Huh? Do you think you get it this season? We'll see. You know, we'll see how it goes. By the city guidelines. Yeah, it's too hard to tell. Cool. Appreciate the time, Thank you so much, Danita. Danita. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to follow us on all social channels at The Black Box Pod. The show would not be possible without our team. Special thanks to our producers, Amanda Berkowitz and Katie McGuigan. Our video director, Paul Aspen. Music by Ye Ali. Designed by Lineage Digital. All photos by Jonathan Gabriel Charles. And our production house, Gotham Podcast Studio in New York City. Special shout out to Raul Hernandez. We'll see you guys next time.